Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 1 of Youth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Youth by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C.J. Hogarth. Section 1. Chapters 1 through 4. Chapter 1. What I consider to have been the beginning of my youth. I have said that my friendship with Dmitri opened up for me a new view of my life and of its aim and relations. The essence of that view lay in the conviction that the destiny of man is to strive for moral improvement, and that such improvement is at once easy, possible, and lasting. Hitherto, however, I had found pleasure only in the new ideas which I discovered to arise from that conviction, and in the forming of brilliant plans for a moral, active future, while all the time my life had been continuing along its old, petty, muddled, pleasure-seeking course, and the same virtuous thoughts which I and my adored friend Dmitri, my own marvellous Mishya, as I used to call him to myself in a whisper, had been wont to exchange with one another, still pleased my intellect, but left my sensibility untouched. Nevertheless there came a moment when those thoughts swept into my head with a sudden freshness and force of moral revelation, which left me aghast at the amount of time which I had been wasting, and made me feel as though I must at once, that very second, apply those thoughts to life, with the firm intention of never again changing them. It is from that moment that I date the beginning of my youth. I was then nearly sixteen. Tutor still attended to give me lessons, St. Jerome still acted as general supervisor of my education, and willy-nilly I was being prepared for the university. In addition to my studies my occupations included certain vague dreamings and ponderings, a number of gymnastic exercises to make myself the finest athlete in the world a good deal of aimless thoughtless wandering through the rooms of the house, but more especially along the maidservants' quarter, and much looking at myself in the mirror. From the latter, however, I always turned away with a vague feeling of depression, almost of repulsion. Not only did I feel sure that my exterior was ugly, but I could derive no comfort from any of the usual consolations under such circumstances. I could not say, for instance, that I had at least an expressive, clever, or refined face, for there was nothing whatever expressive about it. Its features were of the most humdrum, dull, and unbecoming type, with small gray eyes which seemed to me, whenever I regarded them in the mirror, to be stupid rather than clever. Of manly bearing I possessed even less, since, although I was not exactly small of stature, and had moreover plenty of strength for my years, Every feature in my face was of the meek, sleepy-looking, indefinite type. Even refinement was lacking in it, since, on the contrary, it precisely resembled that of a simple-looking moujik, while I also had the same big hands and feet as he. At the time all this seemed to me very shameful. CHAPTER Two, 
Springtime Easter of the year when I entered the university fell late in April, so that the examinations were fixed for St. Thomas's week, Easter week, and I had to spend Good Friday in fasting and finally getting myself ready for the ordeal. Following upon wet snow, the kind of stuff which Karl Ivanitch used to describe as a child following its father, the weather had for three days been bright and mild and still. Not a clot of snow was now to be seen in the streets, and the dirty slush had given place to wet shining pavements and coursing rivulets. The last icicles on the roofs were fast melting in the sunshine, buds were swelling on the trees in the little garden, the path leading across the courtyard to the stables was soft instead of being a frozen ridge of mud, and mossy grass was showing green between the stones around the entrance steps. It was just that particular time in spring when the season exercises the strongest influence upon the human soul. When clear sunlight illuminates everything, yet sheds no warmth, when rivulets run trickling under one's feet, when the air is charged with an odorous freshness, and when the bright blue sky is streaked with long transparent clouds. For some reason or another the influence of this early stage in the birth of spring always seems to me more perceptible and more impressive in a great town than in the country. One sees less, but one feels more. I was standing near the window, through the double frames of which the morning sun was throwing its moat-flecked beams upon the floor of what seemed to me my intolerably wearisome schoolroom, and working out a long algebraical equation on the blackboard. In one hand I was holding a ragged, long-suffering algebra, and in the other a small piece of chalk which had already besmeared my hands, my face, and the elbows of my jacket. Nicola, clad in an apron, and with his sleeves rolled up, was picking out the putty from the window-frames with a pair of nippers, and unfastening the screws. The window looked out upon the little garden. At length this occupation and the noise which he was making over it arrested my attention. At the moment I was in a very cross, dissatisfied frame of mind, for nothing seemed to be going right with me. I had made a mistake at the very beginning of my algebra, and so should have to work it out again. Twice I had let the chalk drop. I was conscious that my hands and face were whitened all over. The sponge had rolled away into a corner, and the noise of Nicola's operations was fast getting on my nerves. I had a feeling as though I wanted to fly into a temper and grumble at someone, so I threw down chalk and algebra alike, and began to pace the room. Then suddenly I remembered that to-day we were to go to confession, and that therefore I must refrain from doing anything wrong. Next, with equal suddenness, I relapsed into an extraordinarily good-humoured frame of mind, and walked across to Nicola. "'Let me help you, Nicola,' I said, trying to speak as pleasantly as I possibly could. The idea that I was performing a meritorious action in thus suppressing my ill-temper and offering to help him increased my good-humour all the more. By this time the putty had been chipped out and the screws removed, yet, though Nicola pulled with might and main at the cross-piece, the window-frame refused to budge. "'If it comes out as soon as he and I begin to pull it together,' I thought, "'it will be rather a shame, as then I shall have nothing more of the kind to do to-day.' Suddenly the frame yielded a little at one side and came out. "'Where shall I put it?' I said. "'Let me see to it, if you please,' replied Nicola, evidently surprised as well as seemingly not over-pleased at my zeal. 
We must not leave it here, but carry it away to the lumber-room, where I keep all the frames stored and numbered." "'Oh, but I can manage it,' I said, as I lifted it up. I verily believe that if the lumber-room had been a couple of versts away, and the frame twice as heavy as it was, I should have been the more pleased." I felt as though I wanted to tire myself out in performing this service for Nicola. When I returned to the room the bricks and screws had been replaced on the window-sill, and Nicola was sweeping the debris, as well as a few torpid flies, out of the open window. The fresh, fragrant air was rushing into and filling all the room, while with it came also the dull murmur of the city and the twittering of sparrows in the garden. Everything was brilliant light. The room looked cheerful, and a gentle spring breeze was stirring Nicola's hair and the leaves of my algebra. Approaching the window I sat down upon the sill, turned my eyes downwards toward the garden, and fell into a brown study. Something new to me, something extraordinarily potent and unfamiliar, had suddenly invaded my soul. The wet ground on which, here and there, a few yellowish stalks and blades of bright green grass were to be seen, the little rivulets glittering in the sunshine, and sweeping clouds of earth and tiny chips of wood along with them, the reddish twigs of the lilac with their swelling buds, which nodded just beneath the window, the fussy twitterings of birds as they fluttered in the bush below, the blackened fence shining wet from the snow which had lately melted off it, and most of all the raw, odorous air and radiant sunlight, all spoke to me, clearly and unmistakably, of something new and beautiful, of something which, though I cannot repeat it here as it was then expressed to me, I will try to reproduce so far as I understood it. Everything spoke to me of beauty, happiness, and virtue, as three things which were both easy and possible for me, and said that no one of them could exist without the other two, since beauty, happiness, and virtue were one. How did I never come to understand that before? I cried to myself. How did I ever manage to be so wicked? Oh, but how good, how happy I could be, nay, I will be, in the future. At once, at once, yes, this very minute, I will become another being, and begin to live differently. For all that, I continued sitting on the window-sill, continued merely dreaming and doing nothing. Have you ever— on a summer's day gone to bed in dull rainy weather, and waking just at sunset, opened your eyes and seen through the square space of the window, the space where the linen blind is blowing up and down, and beating its rod upon the window-sill, the rain-soaked shadowy purple vista of an avenue of lime-trees, with a damp garden path lit up by the clear slanting beams of the sun, and then suddenly heard the joyous sounds of bird-life in the garden and seen insects flying to and fro at the open window, and glittering in the sunlight, and smelt the fragrance of the rain-washed air, and thought to yourself, Am I not ashamed to be lying in bed on such an evening as this? And leaping joyously to your feet, gone out into the garden, and reveled in all that welter of life? If you have, then you can imagine for yourself the overpowering sensation which was then possessing me. CHAPTER Three, DREAMS "'To-day I will make my confession and purge myself of every sin,' I thought to myself. Nor will I ever commit another one. At this point I recalled all the peccadilloes which most troubled my conscience. I will go to church regularly every Sunday, as well as read the gospel at the close of every hour throughout the day. 
What is more, I will set aside, out of the check which I shall receive each month after I have gone to the university, two and a half roubles, a tenth of my monthly allowance, for people who are poor but not exactly beggars, yet without letting any one know anything about it. Yes, I will begin to look out for people like that—orphans or old women—at once, yet never tell a soul what I am doing for them. Also. I will have a room here of my very own, St. Jerome's, probably, and look after it myself, and keep it perfectly clean. I will never let any one do anything for me, for every one is just a human being like myself. Likewise, I will walk every day, not drive, to the university. Even if someone gives me a droshki, Russian phaeton, I will sell it, and devote money to the poor. Everything I will do exactly and always—what that always meant I could not possibly have said but at least I had a vivid consciousness of its connoting some kind of prudent, moral, and irreproachable life. I will get up all my lectures thoroughly, and go over all the subjects beforehand, so that at the end of my first course I may come out on top and write a thesis. During my second course also I will get up everything beforehand, so that I may soon be transferred to the third course, and at eighteen come out on top in the examinations, and receive two gold medals and go on to be master of arts, and doctor, and the first scholar in Europe. Yes, in all Europe I mean to be the first scholar. Well, what next? I asked myself at this point. Suddenly it struck me that dreams of this sort were a form of pride, a sin which I should have to confess to the priest that very evening. So I returned to the original thread of my meditations. When getting up my lectures I will go to the Vorobivi Gori, Sparrow Hills, a public park near Moscow, and choose some spot under a tree and read my lectures over there. Sometimes I will take with me something to eat—cheese or a pie from Pedotis, or something of the kind. After that I will sleep a little, and then read some good book or other, or else draw pictures, or play on some instrument. Certainly I must learn to play the flute. Perhaps she, too, will be walking on the Vorobivigori and will approach me one day and say, Who are you? And I shall look at her oh so sadly, and say that I am the son of a priest, and that I am happy only when I am there alone, quite alone. Then she will give me her hand, and say something to me, and sit down beside me. So every day we shall go to the same spot, and be friends together, and I shall kiss her. But no, that would not be right. On the contrary, from this day forward I never mean to look at a woman again. Never, never again do I mean to walk with a girl, nor even to go near one if I can help it. Yet, of course, in three years' time, when I have come of age, I shall marry. Also, I mean to take as much exercise as ever I can, and to do gymnastics every day, so that when I have turned twenty-five I shall be stronger even than Rappo. On my first day's training I mean to hold out half a pood. The pood equals forty Russian pounds at arm's length for five minutes, and the next day twenty-one pounds, and the third day twenty-two pounds, and so on, until at last I can hold out four poods in each hand, and be stronger even than a porter. Then if ever any one should try to insult me, or should begin to speak disrespectfully of her, I shall take him, so, by the front of his coat, and lift him up an arshin—the arshin equals two feet three inches—or two with one hand, and just hold him there, so that he may feel my strength and cease from his conduct. Yet that too would not be right. No, no, it would not matter. I should not hurt him, merely show him that I— 
Let no one blame me because the dreams of my youth were as foolish as those of my childhood and boyhood. I am sure that, even if it be my fate to live to extreme old age and to continue my story with the years, I, an old man of seventy, shall be found dreaming dreams just as impossible and childish as those I am dreaming now. I shall be dreaming of some lovely Maria who loves me, the toothless old man, as she might love a Mazeppa, of some imbecile son who, through some extraordinary chance, has suddenly become a minister of state, of my suddenly receiving a windfall of a million roubles. I am sure that there exists no human being, no human age, to whom or to which that gracious consolatory power of dreaming is totally a stranger. Yet save for the one general feature of magic and impossibility, the dreams of each human being, of each age of man, have their own distinguishing characteristics. At the period upon which I look as having marked the close of my boyhood and the beginning of my youth, four leading sentiments formed the basis of my dreams. The first of those sentiments was love for her, for an imaginary woman whom I always pictured the same in my dreams and whom I somehow expected to meet some day and somewhere. This she of mine had a little of Sonetchka in her, a little of Masha, as Masha could look when she stood washing linen over the clothes-tub, and a little of a certain woman with pearls round her fair white neck, whom I had once seen long, long ago at a theatre, in a box below our own. My second sentiment was a craving for love. I wanted every one to know me and to love me. I wanted to be able to utter my name, Nikola Irtenieff, and at once to see every one thunderstruck at it, and come crowding round me and thanking me for something or another. I hardly knew what. My third sentiment was the expectation of some extraordinary glorious happiness that was impending, some happiness so strong and assured as to verge upon ecstasy. Indeed, so firmly persuaded was I that very, very soon some unexpected chance would suddenly make me the richest and most famous man in the world, that I lived in constant tremulous expectation of this magic good fortune befalling me. I was always thinking to myself that it is a beginning, and that I should go on thereafter to attain everything that a man could wish for. Consequently, I was ever hurrying from place to place in the belief that it must be beginning just where I happened not to be. Lastly, my fourth and principal sentiment of all was abhorrence of myself, mingled with regret, yet a regret so blended with the certain expectation of happiness to which I have referred that it had nothing of sorrow. It seemed to me that it would be so easy and natural for me to tear myself away from my past and to remake it, to forget all that had been, and to begin my life with all its relations anew that the past never troubled me, never clung to me at all. I even found a certain pleasure in detesting the past, and in seeing it in a darker light than the true one. This note of regret, and of a curious longing for perfection, were the chief mental impressions which I gathered from that new stage of my growth. Impressions which imparted new principles to my view of myself, of men, and of God's world. O oh, good and consoling voice, which in later days, in sorrowful days, when my soul yielded silently to the sway of life's falseness and depravity, so often raised a sudden, bold protest against all iniquity, as well as mercilessly exposed the past, commanded, nay, compelled me, to love only the pure vista of the present, and promised me all that was fair and happy in the future. O oh, good and consoling voice, 
Surely the day will never come when you are silent. CHAPTER Four, OUR FAMILY CIRCLE Papa was seldom at home that spring, yet whenever he was so, he seemed extraordinarily cheerful as he either strummed his favorite pieces on the piano, or looked roguishly at us and made jokes about us all, not excluding even Mimi. For instance, he would say that the Tsarevich himself had seen Mimi at the rink, and fallen so much in love with her that he had presented a petition to the Synod for divorce, or else that I had been granted an appointment as secretary to the Austrian ambassador, a piece of news which he imparted to us with a perfectly grave face. Next he would frighten Katenka with some spiders, of which she was very much afraid, engage in an animated conversation with our friends Dubkoff and Nekludov, and tell us and our guests over and over again his plans for the year. Although these plans changed almost from day to day, and were forever contradicting one another, they seemed so attractive that we were always glad to listen to them, and Lubotshka, in particular, would glue her eyes to his face so as not to lose a single word. One day his plan would be that he should leave my brother and myself at the university, and go and live with Lubotshka in Italy for two years. Next the plan would be that he should buy an estate in the south coast of the Crimea, and take us for an annual visit there. Next, that we should migrate en masse to St. Petersburg, and so forth. Yet, in addition to this unusual cheerfulness of his, another change had come over him of late, a change which greatly surprised me. This was that he had had some fashionable clothes made, an olive-coloured frock-coat, smart trousers with straps at the sides, and a long wadded greatcoat which fitted him to perfection. Often, too, there was a delightful smell of scent about him when he came home from a party, more especially when he had been to see a lady of whom Mimi never spoke, but with a sigh and a face that seemed to say, Poor orphans, how dreadful! It is a good thing that she is gone now. And so on, and so on. From Nicola, for Papa never spoke to us of his gambling, I had learnt that he, Papa had been very fortunate in play that winter, and so had won an extraordinary amount of money, all of which he had placed in the bank after vowing that he would play no more that spring. Evidently it was his fear of being unable to resist again doing so that was rendering him anxious to leave for the country as soon as possible. Indeed, he ended by deciding not to wait until I had entered the university, but to take the girls to Petrovsky immediately after Easter, and to leave Woloda and myself to follow them at a later season. All that winter, until the opening of spring, Woloda had been inseparable from Dubkoff, while at the same time the pair of them had cooled greatly towards Dmitri. Their chief amusements, so I gathered from conversations overheard, were continual drinking of champagne, sledge-driving past the windows of a lady with whom both of them appeared to be in love, and dancing with her. Not at children's parties, either, but at real balls. It was this last fact which, despite our love for one another, placed a vast gulf between Woloda and myself. We felt that the distance between a boy still taking lessons under a tutor, and a man who danced at real grown-up balls, was too great to allow of their exchanging mutual ideas. Katenka, too, seemed grown up now and read innumerable novels, so that the idea that she would some day be getting married no longer seemed to me a joke. Yet, though she and Woloda were thus grown up, they never made friends with one another, but on the contrary seemed to cherish a mutual contempt. 
In general, when Katenka was at home alone, nothing but novels amused her, and they but slightly. But as soon as ever a visitor of the opposite sex called, she at once grew lively and amiable, and used her eyes for saying things which I could not then understand. It was only later, when she one day informed me in conversation that the only thing a girl was allowed to indulge in was coquetry—coquetry of the eyes, I mean—that I understood those strange contortions of her features which to every one else had seemed a matter for no surprise at all. Lubotshka also had begun to wear what was almost a long dress, a dress which almost concealed her goose-shaped feet. Yet she still remained as ready a weeper as ever. She dreamed now of marrying, not a husser, but a singer or an instrumentalist, and accordingly applied herself to her music with greater diligence than ever. St. Jerome, who knew that he was going to remain with us only until my examinations were over, and so had obtained for himself a new post in the family of some count or another, now looked with contempt upon the members of our household. He stayed indoors very little, took to smoking cigarettes, then all the rage, and was forever whistling lively tunes on the edge of a card. Mimi daily grew more and more despondent, as though, now that we were beginning to grow up, she looked for nothing good from any one or anything. When on the day of which I am speaking I went in to luncheon, I found only Mimi, Katenka, Lubotshka, and St. Jerome in the dining-room. Papa was away, and Woloda in his own room doing some preparation work for his examinations in company with a party of his comrades. Wherefore he had requested that lunch should be sent to him there. Of late Mimi had usually taken the head of the table, and as none of us had any respect for her, luncheon had lost most of its refinement and charm. That is to say, the meal was no longer what it had been in Mamma's or our grandmother's time, namely a kind of rite which brought all the family together at a given hour and divided the day into two halves. We allowed ourselves to come in as late as the second course, to drink wine in tumblers St. Jerome himself set us the example, to roll about on our chairs, to depart without saying grace, and so on. In fact, luncheon had ceased to be a family ceremony. In the old days, at Petrovsky, every one had been used to wash and dress for the meal, and then to repair to the drawing-room, as the appointed hour, two o'clock, drew near, and pass the time of waiting in lively conversation. Just as the clock in the servants' hall was beginning to whirr before striking the hour, Foka would enter with noiseless footsteps, and throwing his napkin over his arm, and assuming a dignified, rather severe expression, would say in loud, measured tones, "'Luncheon is ready.' Thereupon, with pleased, cheerful faces, we would form a procession, the elders going first and the juniors following and with much rustling of starched petticoats and subdued creaking of boots and shoes, would proceed to the dining-room, where, still talking in undertones, the company would seat themselves in their accustomed places. Or again at Moscow we would all of us be standing before the table ready laid in the hall, talking quietly among ourselves, as we waited for our grandmother, whom the butler, Gabriel, had gone to acquaint with the fact that luncheon was ready. Suddenly the door would open, there would come the faint swish of a dress and the sound of footsteps, and our grandmother, dressed in a mob-cap trimmed with a quaint old lilac bow, and wearing either a smile or a severe expression on her face according as the state of her health inclined her, would issue from her room. Gabriel would hasten to precede her to her armchair, the other chairs would make a scraping sound, 
and with a feeling as though a cold shiver, the precursor of appetite, were running down one's back, one would seize upon one's damp starched napkin, nibble a morsel or two of bread, and rubbing one's hand softly under the table, gaze with eager, radiant impatience at the steaming plates of soup which the butler was beginning to dispense in order of ranks and ages, or according to the favour of our grandmother. On the present occasion, however, I was conscious of neither excitement nor pleasure when I went in to luncheon. Even the mingled chatter of Mimi, the girls, and St. Jerome about the horrible boots of our Russian tutor, the pleated dresses worn by the young princesses Kornikoff, and so forth, chatter which at any other time would have filled me with sincerity of contempt which I should have been at no pains to conceal, at all events so far as Lubotshka and Katenka were concerned, failed to shake the benevolent frame of mind into which I had fallen. I was unusually good-humoured that day, and listened to everything with a smile and a studied air of kindness. Even when I asked for the kvass, I did so politely, while I lost not a moment in agreeing with St. Jerome when he told me that it was undoubtedly more correct to say je peux than je puis. Yet I must confess to a certain disappointment at finding that no one paid any particular attention to my politeness and good-humour. After luncheon, Lubotshka showed me a paper on which she had written down a list of her sins, upon which I observed that, although the idea was excellent so far as it went, it would be still better for her to write down her sins on her soul—a very different matter." "'Why is it a very different matter?' asked Lubotshka. "'Never mind. That is all right. You do not understand me.' And I went upstairs to my room, telling St. Jerome that I was going to work, but in reality purposing to occupy the hour and a half before confession-time in writing down a list of my daily tasks and duties which should last me all my life together with a statement of my life's aim, and the rules by which I meant unswervingly to be guided. End of section 1. Recording by Bill Borst. Section 2. Of Youth. By Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2. Chapters 5 through 8. CHAPTER Five, MY RULES I took some sheets of paper, and tried, first of all, to make a list of my tasks and duties for the coming year. The paper needed ruling, but as I could not find the ruler I had to use a Latin dictionary instead. The result was that, when I had drawn the pen along the edge of the dictionary and removed the latter, I found that, in place of a line, I had only made an oblong smudge on the paper, since the dictionary was not long enough to reach across it and the pen had slipped round the soft, yielding corner of the book. Thereupon I took another piece of paper, and by carefully manipulating the dictionary contrived to rule what at least resembled lines. Dividing my duties into three sections—my duties to myself, my duties to my neighbour, and my duties to God—I started to indict a list of the first of those sections. But they seemed to me so numerous, and therefore requiring to be divided into so many species and subdivisions, that I thought I had better first of all write down the heading of Rules of My Life before proceeding to their detailed description. Accordingly, I proceeded to write Rules of My Life on the outside of the six sheets of paper which I had made into a sort of folio, but the words came out in such a crooked and uneven scrawl that for long I sat debating the question, shall I write them again? 
for long sat in agonized contemplation of the ragged handwriting and disfigured title-page why was it that all the beauty and clarity which my soul then contained came out so misshapenly on paper as in life itself just when i was wishing to apply those qualities to what i was thinking at the moment the priest is here so please come downstairs and hear his directions said nicola as he entered hurriedly concealing my folio under the tablecloth i looked at myself in the mirror combed my hair upwards i imagined this to give me a pensive air and descended to the divania room with divans or anteroom where the table stood covered with a cloth and had an icon and candles placed upon it papa entered just as i did but by another door whereupon the priest a grey-headed old monk with a severe elderly face blessed him and papa kissed his small squat wizened hand i did the same go and call waldemar said papa where is he wait a minute though perhaps he is preparing for the communion at the university no he is with the prince said katenka and glanced at lubotshka suddenly the latter blushed for some reason or another and then frowned finally pretending that she was not well she left the room and i followed her in the drawing-room she halted and began to pencil something fresh on her paper of piccadillos well what new sin have you gone and committed i asked nothing she replied with another blush all at once we heard dmitri's voice raised in the hall as he took his leave of woloda it seems to me you are always experiencing some new temptation said katenka who had entered the room behind us and now stood looking at lubotshka what was the matter with my sister i could not conceive but she was now so agitated that the tears were starting from her eyes finally her confusion grew uncontrollable and vented itself in rage against both herself and katenka who appeared to be teasing her any one can see that you are a foreigner she cried nothing offended katenka so much as to be called by that term which is why lubotshka used it just because i have the secret of which you know she went on with anger ringing through her tone you purposely go and upset me please do understand that it is no joking matter do you know what she has gone and written on her paper nikolinka cried katenka much infuriated by the term foreigner she has written down that oh i never could have believed that you could be so cruel exclaimed lobotshka now bursting into open sobbing as she moved away from us you chose that moment on purpose you spend your whole time in trying to make me sin i'll never go to you again for sympathy and advice chapter six confession with these and other disjointed impressions in my mind i returned to the divania as soon as every one had reassembled the priest rose and prepared to read the prayer before confession the instant that the silence was broken by the stern expressive voice of the monk as he recited the prayer and more especially when he addressed to us the words reveal thou all thy sins without shame concealment or extenuation and let thy soul be cleansed before god for if thou concealest aught then great will be thy sin the same sensation of reverent awe came over me as i had felt during the morning i even took a certain pleasure in recognizing this condition of mine and strove to preserve it not only by restraining all other thoughts from entering my brain but also by consciously exerting myself to feel no other sensation than this same one of reverence papa was the first to go to confession he remained a long long time in the room which had belonged to our grandmother and during that time the rest of us kept silence in the divinea 
or whispered to one another on the subject of who should precede whom. At length the voice of the priest again reading the prayer sounded from the doorway, and then papa's footsteps. The door creaked as he came out, coughing and holding one shoulder higher than the other, in his usual way, and for the moment he did not look at any of us. "'You go now, Luba,' he said presently, as he gave her cheek a mischievous pinch. "'Mind you tell him everything. You are my greatest sinner, you know.' Lubotshka went red and pale by turns, took her memorandum paper out of her apron, replaced it, and finally moved away towards the doorway, with her head sunk between her shoulders, as though she expected to receive a blow upon it from above. She was not gone long, and when she returned her shoulders were shaking with sobs. At length, next after the excellent Katenka, who came out of the doorway with a smile on her face, my turn arrived. I entered the dimly lighted room with the same vague feeling of awe, the same conscious eagerness to arouse that feeling more and more in my soul, that had possessed me up to the present moment. The priest, standing in front of a reading-desk, slowly turned his face to me. I was not more than five minutes in the room, but came out from it happy, and so I persuaded myself entirely cleansed, a new, a morally reborn individual. Despite the fact that the old surroundings of my life now struck me as unfamiliar, even though the rooms, the furniture, and my own figure—would to heavens that I could have changed my outer man for the better in the same way that I believed myself to have changed my inner eye—were the same as before. I remained in that comfortable attitude of mine until the very moment of bedtime. Yet no sooner had I begun to grow drowsy with the conning over of my sins than in a flash I recollected a particularly shameful sin which I had suppressed at confession time. Instantly the words of the prayer before confession came back to my memory and began sounding in my ears. My peace was gone for ever. For if thou concealest aught, then great will be thy sin. Each time that the phrase recurred to me I saw myself a sinner for whom no punishment was adequate. Long did I toss from side to side as I considered my position, while expecting every moment to be visited with the divine wrath, to be struck with sudden death perhaps, an insupportable thought. Then suddenly the reassuring thought occurred to me, why should I not drive out to the monastery when the morning comes, and see the priest again, and make a second confession? Thereafter I grew calmer. CHAPTER Seven, THE EXPEDITION TO THE MONASTERY Several times that night I woke in terror at the thought that I might be oversleeping myself, and by six o'clock was out of bed, although the dawn was hardly peeping in at the window. I put on my clothes and boots, all of which were lying tumbled and unbrushed beside the bed, since Nicola, of course, had not been in yet to tidy them up, and without a prayer said or my face washed, emerged for the first time in my life into the street alone. Over the way, behind the green roof of a large building, the dim, cold dawn was beginning to blush red. The keen frost of the spring morning, which had stiffened the pools and mud, and made them crackle under my feet, now nipped my face and hands also. Not a cab was to be seen, though I had counted upon one to make the journey out and home the quicker. Only a file of wagons was rumbling along the Arbat Prospect and a couple of bricklayers talking noisily together as they strode along the pavement. However, after walking a verst or so I began to meet men and women taking baskets to market or going with empty barrels to fetch the day's water supply, until at length, at the cross streets near the Arbot Gate, 
where a pie-man had set up his stall and a baker was just opening his shop, I espied an old cabman, shaking himself after indulging in a nap on the box of his bescratched old blue-painted hobbledehoy wreck of a droshky. He seemed barely awake as he asked twenty kopecks as the fare to the monastery and back, but came to himself a moment afterwards, just as I was about to get in, and touching up his horse with the spare end of the reins, started to drive off and leave me. "'My horse wants feeding,' he growled. "'I can't take you, Baron, sir.' With some difficulty, and a promise of forty kopecks, I persuaded him to stop. He eyed me narrowly as he pulled up, but nevertheless said, "'Very well, get in, Baron.' I must confess that I had some qualms lest he should drive me to a quiet corner somewhere, and then rob me, but I caught hold of the collar of his ragged driving-coat, close to where his wrinkled neck showed sadly lean above his hunched-up back and climbed on to the blue-painted, curved, rickety seat. As we set off along Vazd-Fishenka Street, I noticed that the back of the droshki was covered with a strip of the same greenish material as that of which his coat was made. For some reason or another this reassured me, and I no longer felt nervous of being taken to a quiet spot and robbed. The sun had risen to a good height, and was gilding the cupolas of the churches when we arrived at the monastery. In the shade the frost had not yet given, but in the open roadway muddy rivulets of water were coursing along, and it was through fast-thawing mire that the horse went clip-clopping his way. Alighting, and entering the monastery grounds, I inquired of the first monk whom I met where I could find the priest whom I was seeking. "'His cell is over there,' replied the monk, as he stopped a moment and pointed towards a little building up to which a flight of steps led. "'I respectfully thank you,' I said and then fell to wondering what all the monks, who at that moment began to come filing out of the church, must be thinking of me as they glanced in my direction. I was neither a grown-up nor a child. While my face was unwashed, my hair unbrushed, my clothes tumbled, and my boots unblacked and muddy. To what class of persons were the brethren assigning me, for they stared at me hard enough? Nevertheless, I proceeded in the direction which the young priest had pointed out to me. An old man with bushy grey eyebrows and a black cassock met me on the narrow path to the cells, and asked me what I wanted. For a brief moment I felt inclined to say nothing, and then run back to the droshki and drive away home. But for all its beetling brows the face of the old man inspired confidence, and I merely said that I wished to see the priest whom I named. "'Very well, young sir. I will take you to him,' said the old man, as he turned round. Clearly he had guessed my errand at a stroke. The father is at Matins at this moment, but he will soon be back, and, opening a door, the old man led me through a neat hall and corridor, all lined with clean matting, to a cell. "'Please to wait here,' he added, and then, with a kind, reassuring glance, departed. The little room in which I found myself was of the smallest possible dimensions, but extremely neat and clean. Its furniture only consisted of a small table covered with a cloth and placed between two equally small casement windows, in which stood two pots of geraniums, a stand of icons with a lamp suspended in front of them, a bench, and two chairs. In one corner hung a wall clock with little flowers painted on its dial, and brass weights to its chains, while upon two nails driven into a screen, which fastened to the ceiling with whitewashed pegs, probably concealed the bed hung a couple of cassocks. The windows looked out upon a whitewashed wall, about two arshins distant, and in the space between them there grew a small lilac-bush. 
Not a sound penetrated from without, and in the stillness the measured friendly stroke of the clock's pendulum seemed to beat quite loudly. The instant that I found myself alone in this calm retreat, all other thoughts and recollections left my head as completely as though they had never been there, and I subsided into an expressibly pleasing kind of torpor. The rusty alpaca cassocks with their frayed linings, the worn black leather bindings of the books with their metal clasps, the dull green plants with their carefully watered leaves and soil, and above all the abrupt regular beat of the pendulum, all spoke to me intimately of some new life hitherto unknown to me, a life of unity and prayer, of calm, restful happiness. The months, the years may pass, I thought to myself, but he remains alone, always at peace, always knowing that his conscience is pure before God, that his prayer will be heard by him. For fully half an hour I sat on that chair, trying not to move, not even to breathe loudly, for fear I should mar the harmony of the sounds which were telling me so much, and ever the pendulum continued to beat the same, now a little louder to the right, now a little softer to the left. CHAPTER Eight: THE SECOND CONFESSION Suddenly the sound of the priest's footsteps roused me from this reverie. "'Good morning to you,' he said, as he smoothed his gray hair with his hand. "'What can I do for you?' I besought him to give me his blessing and then kissed his small wizened hand with great fervour. After I had explained to him my errand, he said nothing, but moved away towards the icons, and began to read the exhortation. Whereupon I overcame my shame, and told him all that was in my heart. Finally he laid his hands upon my head, and pronounced in his even, resonant voice the words, My son, may the blessing of our Heavenly Father be upon thee, and may he always preserve thee in faithfulness, loving-kindness, and meekness. Amen. I was entirely happy. Tears of joy coursed down my face, as I kissed the hem of his cassock and then raised my head again. The face of the priest expressed perfect tranquillity. So keenly did I feel the joy of reconciliation that, fearing in any way to dispel it, I took hasty leave of him, and, without looking to one side of me or the other, in order that my attention might not be distracted, left the grounds and re-entered the rickety, battered droshky. Yet the joltings of the vehicle and the variety of objects which flitted past my eyes soon dissipated that feeling, and I became filled with nothing but the idea that the priest must have thought me the finest-spirited young man he had ever met, or ever would meet, in the whole of his life. Indeed, I reflected, there could not be many such as myself. Of that I felt sure and the conviction produced in me the kind of complacency which craves for self-communication to another. I had a great desire to unbosom myself to some one, and as there was no one else to speak to, I addressed myself to the cabman. "'Was I very long gone?' I asked him. "'No, not very long,' he replied. He seemed to have grown more cheerful under the influence of the sunshine. "'Yet now it is a good while past my horse's feeding time. You see, I am a night cabman.' "'Well, I only seemed to myself to be about a minute,' I went on. "'Do you know what I went there for?' I added, changing my seat to the well of the droshky so as to be nearer the driver. "'What business is it of mine? I drive a fare where he tells me to go,' he replied. "'Yes, but all the same. What do you think I went there for?' I persisted. "'I expect someone you know is going to be buried there, so you went to see about a plot for the grave.' "'No, no, my friend. Still, do you know what I went there for?' 
"'No, of course I cannot tell, Baron,' he repeated. His voice seemed to me so kind that I decided to edify him by relating the cause of my expedition, and even telling him of the feeling which I had experienced. "'Shall I tell you?' I said. "'Well, you see—' And I told him all, as well as inflicted upon him a description of my fine sentiments. To this day I blush at the recollection. "'Well, well,' said the cabman, non-committally, and for a long while afterwards he remained silent and motionless, except that at intervals he adjusted the skirt of his coat each time that it was jerked from beneath his leg by the joltings of his huge boot on the Drochki's step. I felt sure that he must be thinking of me even as the priest had done. That is to say, that he must be thinking that no such fine-spirited young man existed in the world as I. Suddenly he shot at me. "'I tell you what, Baron, you ought to keep God's affairs to yourself.' "'What?' I said. "'Those affairs of yours, they are God's business,' he repeated, mumbling the words with his toothless lips. "'No, he has not understood me,' I thought to myself, and said no more to him till we reached home. Although it was not my original sense of reconciliation and reverence, but only a sort of complacency at having experienced such a sense that lasted in me during the drive home, and that, too, despite the distraction of the crowds of people who now thronged the sunlit streets in every direction, I had no sooner reached home than even my spurious complacency was shattered, for I found that I had not the forty kopecks wherewith to pay the cabmen. To the butler Gabriel I already owed a small debt, and he refused to lend me any more. Seeing me twice run across the courtyard in quest of the money, the cabman must have divined the reason, for leaping from his drochki, he, notwithstanding that he had seemed so kind, began to bawl aloud, with an evident desire to punch my head that people who do not pay for their cab-rides are swindlers. None of my family were yet out of bed, so that, except for the servants, there was no one from whom to borrow the forty kopecks. At length, on my most sacred, sacred word of honour to repay, a word to which, as I could see from his face, he did not altogether trust, Basil so far yielded to his fondness for me, and his remembrance of the many services I had done for him, as to pay the cabman. Thus, all my beautiful feelings ended in smoke. When I went upstairs to dress for church and go to communion with the rest, I found that my new clothes had not yet come home, and so I could not wear them. Then I sinned headlong. Donning my other suit, I went to communion in a sad state of mental perturbation, and filled with complete distrust of all my finer impulses. End of section 2 Recording by Bill Borst Section three of Youth by Leo Tolstoy Translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three Chapters nine through twelve. Chapter nine How I prepared myself for the examinations. On the Thursday in Easter week, papa, my sister Katenka, and Mimi went away into the country, and no one remained in my grandmother's great house but Woloda, Saint Jerome, and myself. The frame of mind which I had experienced on the day of my confession and during my subsequent expedition to the monastery had now completely passed away, and left behind it only a dim, though pleasing, memory, which daily became more and more submerged by the impressions of this emancipated existence. The folio-endorsed rules of my life lay concealed beneath a pile of school-books. 
although the idea of the possibility of framing rules for every occasion in my life and always letting myself be guided by them still pleased me since it appeared an idea at once simple and magnificent and i was determined to make practical applications of it i seemed somehow to have forgotten to put it into practice at once and kept deferring doing so until such and such a moment at the same time i took pleasure in the thought that every idea which now entered my head could be allotted precisely to one or other of my three sections of tasks and duties those four or to god those four or to my neighbour and those four or to myself i can always refer everything to them i said to myself as well as the many many other ideas which occur to me on one subject or another yet at this period i often asked myself was i better and more truthful when i only believed in the power of the human intellect or am i more so now when i am losing the faculty of developing that power and am in doubt both as to its potency and as to its importance to this i could return no positive answer the sense of freedom combined with the spring-like feeling of vague expectation to which i have referred already so unsettled me that i could not keep myself in hand could make none but the sorriest of preparations for my university ordeal thus i was busy in the schoolroom one morning and fully aware that i must work hard seeing that to-morrow was the day of my examination in the subject of which i had the two whole questions still to read up yet no sooner had a breath of spring come wafted through the window than i felt as though there were something quite different that i wished to recall to my memory my hands laid down my book my feet began to move of themselves and to set me walking up and down the room and my head felt as though some one had suddenly touched in it a little spring and set some machine in motion so easily and swiftly and naturally did all sorts of pleasing fancies of which i could catch no more than the radiancy begin coursing through it thus one hour two hours elapsed unperceived even if i sat down determinedly to my book and managed to concentrate my whole attention upon what i was reading suddenly there would sound in the corridor the footsteps of a woman and the rustle of her dress instantly everything would escape my mind and i would find it impossible to remain still any longer however much i knew that the woman could only be either gasha or my grandmother's old sewing-maid moving about in the corridor yet suppose it should be she all at once i would say to myself suppose it is beginning now and i were to lose it and darting out into the corridor i would find each time that it was only gasha yet for long enough afterwards i could not recall my attention to my studies a little spring had been touched in my head and a strange mental ferment started afresh again that evening i was sitting alone beside a tallow candle in my room suddenly i looked up for a moment to snuff the candle or to straighten myself in my chair and at once became aware of nothing but the darkness in the corners and the blank of the open doorway then i also became conscious how still the house was and felt as though i could do nothing else than go on listening to that stillness and gazing into the black square of that open doorway and gradually sinking into a brown study as i sat there without moving at intervals however i would get up and go downstairs and begin wandering through the empty rooms once i sat a long while in the small drawing-room as i listened to gasha playing the nightingale with two fingers on the piano in the large drawing-room where a solitary candle burned later when the moon was bright i felt obliged to get out of bed and to lean out of the window so that i might gaze into the garden and at the lighted roof 
of the Shaposnikov mansion, the straight tower of our parish church, and the dark shadows of the fence and the lilac bush where they lay black upon the path. So long did I remain there, that when I at length returned to bed, it was ten o'clock in the morning before I could open my eyes again. In short, had it not been for the tutors who came to give me lessons, as well as for St. Jerome, who at intervals and very grudgingly applied a spur to my self-conceit, and most of all for the desire to figure as clever in the eyes of my friend Nekhludoff, who looked upon distinctions in university examinations as a matter of first-rate importance, had it not been for all these things, I say, the spring and my new freedom would have combined to make me forget everything I had ever learnt, and so go through the examinations to no purpose whatsoever. CHAPTER Ten, THE EXAMINATION IN HISTORY on the 16th of April I entered for the first time, and under the wing of St. Jerome, the great hall of the university. I had driven there with St. Jerome in our smart phaeton, and wearing the first frock-coat of my life, while the whole of my other clothes, even down to my socks and linen, were new and of a grander sort. When a Swiss waiter relieved me of my great-coat, and I stood before him in all the beauty of my attire, I felt almost sorry to dazzle him so yet I had no sooner entered the bright, carpeted, crowded hall, and caught sight of hundreds of other young men in gymnasium. The Russian gymnasium equals the English grammar or secondary school. Uniforms or frock-coats, of whom but a few, threw me an indifferent glance, as well as, at the far end, some solemn-looking professors, who were seated on chairs or walking carelessly about among some tables, then I at once became disabused of the notion that I should attract the general attention while the expression of my face, which at home, and even in the vestibule of the university buildings, had denoted only a kind of vague regret that I should have to present so important and distinguished an appearance, became exchanged for an expression of the most acute nervousness and dejection. However, I soon picked up again when I perceived sitting at one of the desks a very badly, untidily dressed gentleman, who, though not really old, was almost entirely grey. He was occupying a seat quite at the back of the hall, and a little apart from the rest, so I hastened to sit down beside him, and then fell to looking at the candidates for examination, and to forming conclusions about them. Many different figures and faces were there to be seen there. Yet, in my opinion, they all seemed to divide themselves into three classes. First of all, there were youths like myself, attending for examination in the company of their parents or tutors. Among such I could see the youngest, Iwin, accompanied by Frost, and Ilinka Grapp, accompanied by his old father. All youths of this class wore the early beginnings of beards, sported prominent linen, sat quietly in their places, and never opened the books and notebooks which they had brought with them, but gazed at the professors and examination tables with ill-concealed nervousness. The second class of candidates were young men in gymnasium uniforms. Several of them had attained to the dignity of shaving, and most of them knew one another. They talked loudly, called the professors by their names and surnames, occupied themselves in getting their subjects ready, exchanged notebooks, climbed over desks, fetched themselves pies and sandwiches from the vestibule, and ate them then and there, merely lowering their heads to the level of a desk for propriety's sake. Lastly, the third class of candidates, which seemed a small one, consisted of oldish men, some of them in frock-coats but the majority in jackets, and with no linen to be seen. These preserved a serious demeanour, sat by themselves, and had a very dingy look. 
The man who had afforded me consolation by being worse dressed than myself belonged to this class. Leaning forward upon his elbows, and running his fingers through his grey dishevelled hair, as he read some book or another, he had thrown me only a momentary glance, and that not a very friendly one, from a pair of glittering eyes. Then, as I sat down, he had frowned grimly, and stuck a shiny elbow out to prevent me from coming any nearer. On the other hand, the gymnasium men were over-sociable, and I felt rather afraid of their proximity. One of them did not hesitate to thrust a book into my hands, saying, "'Give that to that fellow over there, will you?' while another of them exclaimed as he pushed past me, "'By your leave, young fellow,' and a third made use of my shoulder as a prop when he wanted to scramble over a desk. All this seemed to me a little rough and unpleasant, for I looked upon myself as immensely superior to such fellows, and considered that they ought not to treat me with such familiarity. At length the names began to be called out. The gymnasium men walked out boldly, answered their questions, apparently, well, and came back looking cheerful. My own class of candidates were much more diffident, as well as appeared to answer worse. Of the oldish men, some answered well, and some very poorly. When the name Semenov was called out, my neighbour with the grey hair and glittering eyes jostled me roughly, stepped over my legs, and went up to one of the examiner's tables. It was plain from the aspect of the professors that he answered well and with assurance, yet, on returning to his place, he did not wait to see where he was placed on the list, but quietly collected his notebooks and departed. Several times I shuddered at the sound of the voice calling out the names, but my turn did not come in exact alphabetical order, though already names had begun to be called, beginning with I. Ikonin and Tenyev suddenly shouted some one from the professor's end of the hall. "'Go on, Ikonin. You are being called,' said a tall, red-faced gymnasium student near me. "'But who is this Bartenioff, or Mortenioff, or somebody? I don't know him.' "'It must be you,' whispered St. Jerome loudly in my ear. "'My name is Irtenieff,' I said to the red-faced student. "'Do you think that was the name they were calling out?' "'Yes. Why on earth don't you go up?' he replied. "'Lord, what a dandy!' he added, under his breath, yet not so quietly, but that I failed to hear the words as they came wafted to me from below the desk. In front of me walked Ikonin, a tall young man of about twenty-five, who was one of those whom I had classed as oldish men. He wore a tight brown frock-coat, and a blue satin tie, and had wisps of flaxen hair carefully brushed over his collar in the peasant style. His appearance had already caught my attention when we were sitting among the desks, and had given me an impression that he was not bad-looking. Also I had noticed that he was very talkative. Yet what struck me most about his physiognomy was a tuft of queer red hairs which he had under his chin, as well as, still more, a strange habit of continually unbuttoning his waistcoat and scratching his chest under his shirt. Behind the table to which we were summoned sat three professors, none of whom acknowledged our salutations. A youngish professor was shuffling a bundle of tickets like a pack of cards. Another one, with a star on his frock-coat, was gazing hard at a gymnasium student, who was repeating something at great speed about Charles the Great, and adding to each of his sentences the word, Nakonets, equals the English colloquialism you know while a third one, an old man, in spectacles, proceeded to bend his head down as we approached, and, peering at us through his glasses, pointed silently to the tickets. 
I felt his glance go over both myself and Ikonin, and also felt sure that something about us had displeased him, perhaps it was Ikonin's red hairs, for, after taking another look at the pair of us, he motioned impatiently to us to be quick in taking our tickets. I felt vexed and offended, firstly, because none of the professors had responded to our bows, and secondly, because they evidently coupled me with Ikonin under the one denomination of candidates, and so were condemning me in advance on account of Ikonin's red hairs. I took my ticket boldly and made ready to answer, but the professor's eye passed over my head and alighted upon Ikonin. Accordingly, I occupied myself in reading my ticket. The questions printed on it were all familiar to me, so as I silently awaited my turn, I gazed at what was passing near me. Ikonin seemed in no way diffident, rather than the reverse, for in reaching for his ticket he threw his body halfway across the table. Then he gave his long hair a shake, and rapidly conned over what was written on his ticket. I think he had just opened his mouth to answer when the professor with the star dismissed the gymnasium student with a word of commendation, and then turned and looked at Ikonin. At once the latter seemed taken back, and stopped short. For about two minutes there was a dead silence. "'Well,' said the professor in the spectacles, once more Ikonin opened his mouth, and once more remained silent. "'Come! You are not the only one to be examined. Do you mean to answer, or do you not?' said the youngish professor. But Ikonin did not even look at him. He was gazing fixedly at his ticket, and uttered not a single word. The professor in the spectacles scanned him through his glasses, then over them, then without them, for indeed he had time to take them off, to wipe their lenses carefully, and to replace them. Still not a word from Ikonin. All at once, however, a smile spread itself over his face, and he gave his long hair another shake. Next he reached across the table, laid down his ticket, looked at each of the professors in turn, and then at myself, and finally, wheeling round on his heels, made a gesture with his hand, and returned to the desks. The professors stared blankly at one another. "'Bless the fellow,' said the youngish professor. "'What an original!' It was now my turn to move towards the table, but the professors went on talking in undertones among themselves, as though they were unaware of my presence. At the moment I felt firmly persuaded that the three of them were engrossed solely with the question of whether I should merely pass the examination or whether I should pass it well, and that it was only swagger which made them pretend that they did not care either way, and behave as though they had not seen me. When at length the professor in the spectacles turned to me with an air of indifference, and invited me to answer, I felt hurt, as I looked at him, to think that he should have so undeceived me. Wherefore I answered brokenly at first. In time, however, things came easier to my tongue, and inasmuch as all the questions bore upon Russian history, which I knew thoroughly, I ended with a clap, and even went so far in my desire to convince the professors that I was not Ikonin, and that they must not in any way confound me with him, as to offer to draw a second ticket. The professor in the spectacles, however, merely nodded his head, said that will do, and marked something in his register. On returning to the desks, I had once learnt from the gymnasium men, who somehow seemed to know everything, that I had been placed fifth. CHAPTER Eleven, MY EXAMINATION IN MATHEMATICS At the subsequent examinations, I made several new acquaintances in addition to the Graps, whom I considered unworthy of my notice, and Iwin, who for some reason or other avoided me. With some of these new friends I grew quite intimate, and even Ikonin, 
plucked up sufficient courage to inform me, when we next met, that he would have to undergo re-examination in history, the reason for his failure this time being that the professor of that faculty had never forgiven him for last year's examination, and had, indeed, almost killed him for it. Semenoff, who was destined for the same faculty as myself, the faculty of mathematics, avoided every one up to the very close of the examinations. Always leaning forward upon his elbows and running his fingers through his gray hair, he sat silent and alone. Nevertheless, when called up for examination in mathematics—he had no companion to accompany him—he came out second. The first place was taken by a student from the first gymnasium, a tall, dark, lanky, pale-faced fellow who wore a black folded cravat and had his cheeks and forehead dotted all over with pimples. His hands were shapely and slender, but their nails were so bitten to the quick that the finger-ends looked as though they had been tied round with strips of thread. All this seemed to me splendid, and wholly becoming to a student of the first gymnasium. He spoke to every one, and we all made friends with him. To me, in particular, his walk, his every movement, his lips, his dark eyes, all seemed to have in them something extraordinary and magnetic. On the day of the mathematical examination I arrived earlier than usual at the hall. I knew the syllabus well, yet there were two questions in the algebra which my tutor had managed to pass over, and which were therefore quite unknown to me. If I remember rightly, they were the theory of combinations and Newton's binomial. I seated myself on one of the back benches and pored over the two questions, but inasmuch as I was not accustomed to working in a noisy room, and had even less time for preparation than I had anticipated, I soon found it difficult to take in all that I was reading. "'Here he is. This way, Nekhludoff,' said Woloda's familiar voice behind me. I turned and saw my brother and Dmitri, their gowns unbuttoned and their hands waving a greeting to me, threading their way through the desks. A moment's glance would have sufficed to show any one that they were second-course students, persons to whom the university was as a second home. The mere look of their open gowns expressed at once disdain for the mere candidate, and a knowledge that the mere candidate's soul was filled with envy and admiration of them. I was charmed to think that every one near me could now see that I knew two real second-course students, wherefore I hastened to meet them half-way. Woloda, of course, could not help vaunting his superiority a little. "'Hello, you smug,' he said. "'Haven't you been examined yet?' "'No.' "'Well, what are you reading? Aren't you sufficiently primed?' "'Yes, except in two questions. I don't understand them at all.' "'Eh, what?' And Woloda straightway began to expound to me Newton's binomial, but so rapidly and unintelligibly, that, suddenly reading in my eyes certain misgivings as to the soundness of his knowledge, he glanced also at Dmitri's face. Clearly he saw the same misgivings there, for he blushed hotly, though still continuing his involved explanations. "'No. Hold on, Woloda, and let me try to do it,' put in Dmitri at length with a glance at the professor's corner as he seated himself beside me. I could see that my friend was in the best of humours. This was always the case with him when he was satisfied with himself and was one of the things in him which I liked best. Inasmuch as he knew mathematics well and could speak clearly, he hammered the question so thoroughly into my head that I can remember it to this day. Hardly had he finished when St. Jerome said to me in a loud whisper, A vous, Nicholas. And I followed Ikonin out from among the desks without having had an opportunity of going through the other question of which I was ignorant. 
At the table which we now approached were seated two professors, while before the blackboard stood a gymnasium student who was working some formula aloud and knocking bits off the end of the chalk with his two vigorous strokes. He even continued writing after one of the professors had said to him, Enough! and bidden us draw our tickets. Suppose I get the theory of combinations, I thought to myself, as my tremulous fingers took a ticket from among a bundle wrapped in torn paper. Ikonin, for his part, reached across the table with the same assurance, and the same sidelong movement of his whole body, as he had done at the previous examination. Taking the topmost ticket without troubling to make further selection, he just glanced at it, then frowned angrily. "'I always draw this kind of thing,' he muttered. I looked at mine. Horrors! It was the theory of combinations. "'What have you got?' whispered Ikonin at this point. I showed him. "'Oh, I know that,' he said. "'Will you make an exchange, then?' "'No. Besides, it would be all the same for me if I did,' he contrived to whisper, just as the professor called us up to the blackboard. "'I don't feel up to anything to-day.' "'Then everything is lost,' I thought to myself. Instead of the brilliant result which I had anticipated, I should be forever covered with shame, more so even than Ikonin. Suddenly, under the very eyes of the professor, Ikonin turned to me, snatched my ticket out of my hands, and handed me his own. I looked at his ticket. It was Newton's binomial. The professor was a youngish man, with a pleasant, clever expression of face, an effect chiefly due to the prominence of the lower part of his forehead. What? Are you exchanging tickets, gentlemen? he said. No. He only gave me his to look at, Professor, answered Ikonin, and sure enough the word Professor was the last word that he uttered there. Once again he stepped backwards towards me from the table. Once again he looked at each of the professors in turn, and then at myself. Once again he smiled faintly, and once again he shrugged his shoulders as much as to say, It is no use, my good sirs. Then he returned to the desks. Subsequently I learnt that this was the third year he had vainly attempted to matriculate. I answered my question well, for I had just read it up, and the professor kindly informing me that I had done even better than was required, placed me fifth. CHAPTER Twelve: MY EXAMINATION IN LATIN All went well until my examination in Latin. So far a gymnasium student stood first on the list, Semenoff second, and myself third. On the strength of it I had begun to swagger a little, and to think that, for all my youth, I was not to be despised. From the first day of the examinations I had heard everyone speak with awe of the Professor of Latin, who appeared to be some sort of a wild beast who battened on the financial ruin of young men—of those, that is to say, who paid their own fees—and spoke only in the Greek and Latin tongues. However, St. Jerome, who had coached me in Latin, spoke encouragingly and I myself thought that since I could translate Cicero and certain parts of Horace without the aid of a lexicon, I should do no worse than the rest. Yet things proved otherwise. All the morning the air had been full of rumours concerning the tribulations of candidates who had gone up before me—rumours of how one young fellow had been accorded a naught, another one a single mark only, a third one greeted with abuse and threatened with expulsion, and so forth. Only Semenoff and the first gymnasium student had, as usual, gone up quietly, and returned to their seats with five marks credited to their names. Already I felt a prescience of disaster when Ikonin and myself found ourselves summoned to the little table at which the terrible professor sat in solitary grandeur. 
The terrible professor turned out to be a little, thin, bilious-looking man with hair long and greasy and a face expressive of extraordinary sullenness. Handing Ikonin a copy of Cicero's orations, he bid him translate. To my great astonishment, Ikonin not only read off some of the Latin, but even managed to construe a few lines to the professor's prompting. At the same time, conscious of my superiority over such a feeble companion, I could not help smiling a little, and even looking rather contemptuous, when it came to a question of analysis, and Ikonin, as on previous occasions, plunged into a silence which promised never to end. I had hoped to please the professor by that knowing, slightly sarcastic smile of mine but as a matter of fact I contrived to do quite the contrary. "'Evidently you know better than he, since you are laughing,' he said to me in bad Russian. "'Well, we shall see. Tell me the answer, then.' Later I learnt that the professor was Ikonin's guardian, and that Ikonin actually lived with him. I lost no time in answering the question in syntax which had been put to Ikonin, but the professor only pulled a long face and turned away from me. "'Well, your turn will come presently, and then we shall see how much you know,' he remarked, without looking at me, but proceeding to explain to Ikonin the point on which he had questioned him. "'That will do,' he added, and I saw him put down four marks to Ikonin in his register. "'Come,' I thought to myself, "'he cannot be so strict after all.' When Ikonin had taken his departure, the professor spent fully five minutes—five minutes which seemed to me five hours in setting his books and tickets in order, in blowing his nose, in adjusting and sprawling about on his chair, in gazing down the hall, and in looking here, there, and everywhere, in doing everything, in fact, except once letting his eye rest upon me. Yet even that amount of dissimulation did not seem to satisfy him, for he next opened a book and pretended to read it, for all the world as though I were not there at all. I moved a little nearer him, and gave a cough. "'Ah, yes! You too, of course!' "'Well, translate me something,' he remarked, handing me a book of some kind. "'But no. You had better take this,' and turning over the leaves of a Horace, he indicated to me a passage which I should never have imagined possible of translation. "'I have not prepared this,' I said. "'Oh! Then you only wish to answer things which you have got by heart, do you? Indeed. No, no. Translate me that.' I started to grope for the meaning of the passage. But each questioning look which I threw at the professor was met by a shake of the head, a profound sigh, and an exclamation of, No, no! Finally he banged the book, too, with such a snap that he caught his finger between the covers. Angrily releasing it, he handed me a ticket containing questions and grammar, and flinging himself back in his chair maintained a menacing silence. I should have tried to answer the questions had not the expression of his face so clogged my tongue that nothing seemed to come from it right. "'No, no, that's not it at all,' he suddenly exclaimed in his horrible accent as he altered his posture to one of leaning forward upon the table and playing with the gold signet ring which was nearly slipping from the little finger of his left hand. "'That is not the way to prepare for serious study, my good sir. Fellows like yourself think that, once they have a gown and a blue collar to their backs, they have reached the summit of all things and become students. No, no, my dear sir. A subject needs to be studied fundamentally.' and so on, and so on. During this speech, which was uttered with a clipped sort of intonation, I went on staring dully at his lowered eyelids. Beginning with a fear lest I should lose my place as third on the list, I went on to fear lest I should pass at all. Next these feelings became reinforced by a sense of injustice, injured self-respect, and unmerited humiliation. 
while the contempt which I felt for the professor as some one not quite according to my ideas comme il faut, a fact which I deduced from the shortness, strength, and roundness of his nails, flared up in me more and more, and turned all my other feelings to sheer animosity. Happening presently to glance at me, and to note my quivering lips and tear-filled eyes, he seemed to interpret my agitation as a desire to be accorded my marks and dismissed. Wherefore, with an air of relenting, he said, in the presence of another professor who had just approached, "'Very well. I will accord you a pass, which signified two marks, although you do not deserve it. I do so simply out of consideration for your youth, and in the hope that when you begin your university career you will learn to be less light-minded.' The concluding phrase, uttered in the hearing of the other professor, who at once turned his eyes upon me as though remarking, "'There, you see, young man,' completed my discomfiture. For a moment a mist swam before my eyes, a mist in which the terrible professor seemed to be far away as he sat at his table, while for an instant a wild idea danced through my brain. What if I did do such a thing, I thought to myself? What would come of it? However, I did not do the thing in question, but on the contrary made a bow of peculiar reverence to each of the professors, and with a slight smile on my face, presumably the same smile as that with which I had derided Ikonin, turned away from the table. This piece of unfairness affected me so powerfully at the time that, had I been a free agent, I should have attended for no more examinations. My ambition was gone, since now I could not possibly be third, and I therefore let the other examinations pass without any exertion, or even agitation on my part. In the general list I still stood forth, but that failed to interest me, since I had reasoned things out to myself and come to the conclusion that to try for first place was stupid, even bad form, that, in fact, it was better to pass neither very well nor very badly, as Woloda had done. This attitude I decided to maintain throughout the whole of my university career, notwithstanding that it was the first point on which my opinion had differed from that of my friend Dmitri. Yet, to tell the truth, my thoughts were already turning towards a uniform, a mortar-board, and the possession of a droshky of my own, a room of my own, and, above all, freedom of my own, and certainly the prospect had its charm. End of section 3. Recording by Bill Borst. Section 4 of Youth by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 4. Chapters 13 through 16. Chapter 13. I Become Grown Up. When, on May 8th, I returned home from the final, the Divinity Examination, I found my acquaintance, the foreman from Razanov's, awaiting me. He had called once before to fit me for my gown, as well as for a tunic of glossy black cloth the lapels of which were, on that occasion, only sketched in chalk. But to-day he had come to bring me the clothes in their finished state, with their gilt buttons wrapped in tissue-paper. Donning the garments, and finding them splendid, notwithstanding that St. Jerome assured me that the back of the tunic wrinkled badly, I went downstairs with a complacent smile which I was powerless to banish from my face, and sought Woloda, trying the while to affect unconsciousness of the admiring looks of the servants who came darting out of the hall and corridor to gaze upon me with ravished eyes. Gabriel, the butler, overtook me in the salle, 
and after congratulating me with much empressement, handed me, according to instructions from my father, four banknotes, as well as informed me that Papa had also given orders that from that day forth the groom Kuzma, the Phaeton, and the bay horse Krasovchnik were to be entirely at my disposal. I was so overjoyed at this not altogether expected good fortune that I could no longer feign indifference in Gabriel's presence, but flustered and panting said the first thing which came into my head. Krasovchnik is a splendid trotter, I think it was. Then catching sight of the various heads protruding from the doors of the hall and corridor, I felt that I could bear no more, and set off running at full speed across the saal, dressed as I was in the new tunic, with its shining gilt buttons. Just as I burst into Woloda's room I heard behind me the voices of Dubkoff and Nekhludoff, who had come to congratulate me, as well as to propose a dinner somewhere and the drinking of much champagne in honour of my matriculation. Dmitri informed me that, though he did not care for champagne, he would nevertheless join us that evening and drink my health, while Dubkoff remarked that I looked almost like a colonel, and Woloda omitted to congratulate me at all, merely saying in an acid way that he supposed we should now, in other words, in two days' time, be off into the country. The truth was that Woloda, though pleased at my matriculation, did not altogether like my becoming as grown-up as himself. St. Jerome, who also joined us at this moment, said in a very pompous manner that his duties were now ended, and that although he did not know whether they had been well done or ill, at least he had done his best, and must depart to-morrow to his counts. In replying to their various remarks I could feel in spite of myself a pleased, agreeable, faintly self-sufficient smile playing over my countenance, as well as could remark that that smile communicated itself to those to whom I was speaking. So here I was without a tutor, yet with my own private droshky, my name printed on the list of students, a sword and belt of my own, and a chance of an occasional salute from officials. In short, I was grown up, and I suppose, happy. Finally, we arranged to go out and dine at five o'clock, but since Woloda presently went off to Dubkoff's, and Dmitri disappeared in his usual fashion, saying that there was something he must do before dinner, I was left with two whole hours still at my disposal. For a time I walked through the rooms of the house and looked at myself in all the mirrors, firstly with the tunic buttoned, then with it unbuttoned, and lastly with only the top button fastened. Each time it looked splendid. Eventually, though anxious not to show any excess of delight, I found myself unable to refrain from crossing over to the coach-house and stables to gaze at Krasovchik, Kuzma, and the Droshki. Then I returned, and once more began my tour of the rooms, where I looked at myself in all the mirrors as before, and counted my money over in my pocket, my face smiling happily the while. Yet not an hour had elapsed before I began to feel slightly ennui, to feel a shade of regret that no one was present to see me in my splendid position. I began to long for life and movement, and so sent out orders for the droshki to be got ready, since I had made up my mind to drive to the Kuznetsky bridge, and make some purchases. In this connection I recalled how, after matriculating, Woloda had gone and bought himself a lithograph of horses by Victor Adam, and some pipes and tobacco, wherefore I felt that I too must do the same. Amid glances showered upon me from every side, and with the sunlight reflected from my buttons, cap-badge, and sword, I drove to the Kuznetsky bridge, where, halting at a picture-shop, I entered it with my eyes looking to every side. It was not precisely horses by Adam which I meant to buy, since I did not wish to be accused of too closely imitating Woloda. 
Wherefore, out of shame for causing the obsequious shopmen such agitation as I appeared to do, I made a hasty selection, and pitched upon a water-colour of a woman's head which I saw displayed in the window, price twenty roubles. Yet no sooner had I paid the twenty roubles over the counter, than my heart smote me for having put two such beautifully dressed shop-assistants to so much trouble for such a trifle. Moreover, I fancied that they were regarding me with some disdain. Accordingly, in my desire to show them what manner of man I was, I turned my attention to a silver trifle which I saw displayed in a showcase, and recognizing that it was a porte-crayon, price eighteen roubles, requested that it should forthwith be wrapped in paper for me. Next the money paid, and the information acquired that the splendid pipes and tobacco were to be obtained in an adjacent emporium, I bowed to the two shopmen politely, and issued into the street with the picture under my arm. At the shop next door, which had painted on its signboard a negro smoking a cigar, I bought, likewise out of a desire to imitate no one, some Turkish tobacco, a Stamboul hookah, and two pipes. On coming out of the shop, I had just entered the droshki, when I caught sight of Semenov, who was walking hurriedly along the pavement with his head bent down. Vexed that he should not have recognized me, I called out to him pretty loudly, "'Hold on a minute!' and whipping up the droshki, soon overtook him. "'How do you do?' I said. "'My respects to you,' he replied, but without stopping. "'Why are you not in your university uniform?' I next inquired. At this he stopped short with a frown, and parted his white teeth as though the sun were hurting his eyes. The next moment, however, he threw a glance of studied indifference at my droshki and uniform, and continued on his way. From the Kuznetsky Bridge I drove to a confectioner's in Sverskaya Street, and much as I should have liked it to be supposed that it was the newspapers which most interested me, I had no choice but to begin falling upon tartlet after tartlet. In fact, for all my bashfulness before a gentleman who kept regarding me with some curiosity from behind a newspaper, I ate with great swiftness a tartlet of each of the eight different sorts which the confectioner kept. On reaching home I experienced a slight touch of stomach-ache, but paid no attention to it, and set to work to inspect my purchases. Of these the picture so much displeased me that, instead of having it framed and hung in my room, as Woloda had done with his, I took pains to hide it behind a chest of drawers, where no one could see it. Likewise, though I also found the porte-crayon distasteful, I was able, as I laid it on my table, to comfort myself with the thought that it was at least a silver article, so much capital as it were, and likely to be very useful to a student. As for the smoking things, I decided to put them into use at once, and try their capabilities. Unsealing the four packages, and carefully filling the Stamboul pipe with some fine-cut reddish-yellow Turkish tobacco, I applied a hot cinder to it, and taking the mouthpiece between my first and second fingers, a position of the hand which greatly caught my fancy, started to inhale the smoke. The smell of the tobacco seemed delightful, yet something burnt my mouth and caught me by the breath. Nevertheless I hardened my heart, and continued to draw abundant fumes into my interior. Then I tried blowing rings and retaining the smoke. Soon the room became filled with blue vapours, while the pipe started to crackle and the tobacco to fly out in sparks. Presently also I began to feel a smarting in my mouth, and a giddiness in my head. Accordingly I was on the point of stopping and going to look at myself and my pipe in the mirror, when, to my surprise, I found myself staggering about. The room was whirling round and round 
and as I peered into the mirror, which I reached only with some difficulty, I perceived that my face was as white as a sheet. Hardly had I thrown myself down upon a sofa, when such nausea and faintness swept over me that, making up my mind that the pipe had proved my death, I expected every moment to expire. Terribly frightened, I tried to call out for some one to come and help me, and to send for the doctor. However, this panic of mine did not last long, for I soon understood what the matter was, and remained lying on the sofa with a racking headache and my limbs relaxed as I stared dully at the stamp on the package of tobacco, the pipe-tube coiled on the floor, and the odds and ends of tobacco and confectioner's tartlets which were littered about. Truly, I thought to myself in my dejection and disillusionment, I cannot be quite grown up, if I cannot smoke as other fellows do, and should be fated never to hold a chibuk between my first and second fingers, or to inhale and puff smoke through a flaxen moustache. When Dmitri called for me at five o'clock he found me in this unpleasant predicament. After drinking a glass of water, however, I felt nearly recovered, and ready to go with him. "'So much for your trying to smoke,' said he, as he gazed at the remnants of my debauch. "'It is a silly thing to do, and waste of money as well. I long ago promised myself never to smoke. But come along. We have to call for Dubkoff.' Chapter Fourteen: How Woloda and Dubkoff Amused Themselves The moment that Dmitri entered my room I perceived from his face, manner of walking, and the signs which in him denoted ill-humour, a blinking of the eyes, and a grim holding of his head to one side, as though to straighten his collar, that he was in the coldly correct frame of mind which was his when he felt dissatisfied with himself. It was a frame of mind, too, which always produced a chilling effect upon my feelings towards him. Of late I had begun to observe and appraise my friend's character a little more, but our friendship had in no way suffered from that, since it was still too young and strong for me to be able to look upon Dmitri as anything but perfect, no matter in what light I regarded him. In him there were two personalities, both of which I thought beautiful. One which I loved devotedly, was kind, mild, forgiving, gay, and conscious of being those various things. When he was in this frame of mind, his whole exterior, the very tone of his voice, his every movement, appeared to say, I am kind and good-natured, and rejoice in being so, and every one can see that I so rejoice. The other of his two personalities, one which I had only just begun to apprehend, and before the majesty of which I bowed in spirit, was that of a man who was cold, stern to himself and to others, proud, religious to the point of fanaticism, and pedantically moral. At the present moment he was, as I say, this second personality. With that frankness which constituted a necessary condition of our relations, I told him as soon as we entered the droshky how much it depressed and hurt me to see him, on this my fete day, in a frame of mind so irksome and disagreeable to me. "'What has upset you so?' I asked him. "'Will you not tell me?' "'My dear Nicholas,' was his slow reply as he gave his head a nervous twitch to one side and blinked his eyes, "'since I have given you my word never to conceal anything from you, you have no reason to suspect me of secretiveness. One cannot always be in exactly the same mood, and if I seem at all put out, that is all there is to say about it.' "'What a marvellously open, honourable character his is!' I thought to myself, and dropped the subject. We drove the rest of the way to Dubkoff's in silence. Dubkoff's flat was an unusually fine one, 
or at all events so it seemed to me. Everywhere were rugs, pictures, gardenias, striped hangings, photographs, and curved settees, while on the walls hung guns, pistols, pouches, and the mounted heads of wild beasts. It was the appearance of this apartment which made me aware whom it was that Woloda had imitated in the scheme of his own sitting-room. We found Dubkoff and Woloda engaged in cards, while seated also at the table, and watching the game with close attention, was a gentleman whom I did not know, but who appeared to be of no great importance, judging by the modesty of his attitude. Dubkoff himself was in a silk dressing-gown and soft slippers, while Woloda, seated opposite him on a divan, was in his shirt-sleeves, as well as to judge by his flushed face and the impatient cursory glance which he gave us for a second as he looked up from the cards, much taken up with the game. On seeing me, he reddened still more. "'Well, it is for you to deal,' he remarked to Dubkoff. In an instant I divined that he did not altogether relish my becoming acquainted with the fact that he gambled. Yet his expression had nothing in it of confusion, only a look which seemed to me to say, "'Yes, I play cards, and if you are surprised at that, it is only because you are so young. There is nothing wrong about it. It is necessity at our age." Yes, I at once divined and understood that. Instead of dealing, however, Dubkoff rose and shook hands with us, after which he bade us both be seated, and then offered us pipes, which we declined. "'Here is our diplomat, then, the hero of the day,' he said to me. "'Good Lord! How you look like a colonel!' Hm, I muttered in reply though once more feeling a complacent smile overspread my countenance. I stood in that awe of Dubkoff which a sixteen-year-old boy naturally feels for a twenty-seven-year-old man, of whom his elders say that he is a very clever young man, who can dance well and speak French, and who, though secretly despising one's youth, endeavours to conceal the fact. Yet, despite my respect for him, I somehow found it difficult and uncomfortable, throughout my acquaintanceship with him, to look him in the eyes. I have since remarked that there are three kinds of men whom I cannot face easily, namely those who are much better than myself, those who are much worse, and those between whom and myself there is a mutual determination not to mention some particular thing of which we both are aware. Dubkoff may have been a much better fellow than myself, or he may have been a much worse, but the point was that he lied very frequently without recognizing the fact that I was aware of his doing so yet had determined not to mention it. "'Let us play another round,' said Woloda, hunching one shoulder after the manner of papa, and reshuffling the cards. "'How persistent you are,' said Dubkoff. "'We can play all we want to afterwards. Well, one more round, then.' During the play I looked at their hands. Woloda's hands were large and red, whilst in the crook of the thumb and the way in which the other fingers curved themselves round the cards as he held them they so exactly resembled papa's that now and then I could not help thinking that Woloda purposely held the cards thus so as to look the more like a grown-up. Yet the next moment, looking at his face, I could see that he had not a thought in his mind beyond the game. Dubkoff's hands, on the contrary, were small, puffy, and inclined to clench themselves, as well as extremely neat and small-fingered. They were just the kind of hands which generally display rings, and which are most to be seen on persons who are both inclined to use them and fond of objets de vertu. Woloda must have lost, for the gentleman who was watching the play remarked that Vladimir Petrovitch had terribly bad luck, while Dubkoff 
reached for a notebook, wrote something in it, and then showing Woloda what he had written, said, "'Is that right?' "'Yes,' said Woloda, glancing with feigned carelessness at the notebook. "'Now let us go.' Woloda took Dubkoff, and I gave Dmitri a lift in my droshky. "'What were they playing at?' I inquired of Dmitri. "'At piquet. It is a stupid game. In fact, all such games are stupid.' "'And were they playing for much?' No, not very much, but more than they ought to. Do you ever play yourself? No, I swore never to do so. But Dubkoff will play with any one he can get hold of. He ought not to do that, I remarked. So Woloda does not play so well as he does? Perhaps Dubkoff ought not to, as you say. Yet there is nothing especially bad about it at all. He likes playing, and plays well, but he is a good fellow all the same. I had no idea of this, I said. We must not think ill of him," concluded Dmitri, since he is a simply splendid fellow. I like him very much, and always shall like him in spite of his weakness. For some reason or another the idea occurred to me that, just because Dmitri stuck up so stoutly for Dubkoff, he neither liked nor respected him in reality, but was determined, out of stubbornness and a desire not to be accused of inconstancy, never to own to the fact. He was one of those people who love their friends their life long not so much because those friends remain always dear to them, as because, having once possibly mistakenly liked a person, they look upon it as dishonourable to cease ever to do so. CHAPTER Fifteen. I AM FETTED AT DINNER Dubkoff and Woloda knew every one at the restaurant by name, and every one, from the waiters to the proprietor, paid them great respect. No time was lost in allotting us a private room where a bottle of iced champagne, upon which I tried to look with as much indifference as I could, stood ready waiting for us, and where we were served with a most wonderful repast selected by Dubkoff from the French menu. The meal went off most gaily and agreeably, notwithstanding that Dubkoff, as usual, told us blood-curdling tales of doubtful veracity. Among others, a tale of how his grandmother once shot dead three robbers, who were attacking her. A recital at which I blushed, closed my eyes, and turned away from the narrator. And that Woloda reddened visibly whenever I opened my mouth to speak, which was the more uncalled for on his part, seeing that never once, so far as I can remember, did I say anything shameful. After we had been given champagne, every one congratulated me, and I drank hands across with Dmitri and Dubkoff, and wished them joy. Since, however, I did not know to whom the bottle of champagne belonged—it was explained to me later that it was common property—I considered that, in return, I ought to treat my friends out of the money which I had never ceased to finger in my pocket. Accordingly, I stealthily extracted a ten-rouble note, and beckoning the waiter to my side, handed him the money, and told him in a whisper, yet not so softly but that every one could hear me seeing that every one was staring at me in dead silence, to— bring if you please a half bottle of champagne at this woloda reddened again and began to fidget so violently and to gaze upon myself and every one else with such a distracted air that i felt sure i had somehow put my foot in it however the half bottle came and we drank it with great gusto after that things went on merrily dubkoff continued his unending fairy tales while Woloda also told funny stories, and told them well, too, in a way I should never have credited him. So that our laughter rang long and loud. Their best efforts lay in imitation, and in variance of a certain well-known saw, 
have you ever been abroad one would say to the other for instance no the one interrogated would reply but my brother plays the fiddle such perfection had the pair attained in this species of comic absurdity that they could answer any question by its means while they would also endeavour to unite two absolutely unconnected matters without a previous question having been asked at all yet say everything with a perfectly serious face and produce a most comic effect i too began to try to be funny but as soon as ever i spoke they either looked at me askance or did not look at me until i had finished so that my anecdotes fell flat yet though dubkoff always remarked our diplomat is lying brother i felt so exhilarated with the champagne in the company of my elders that the remark scarcely touched me only dimitri though he drank level with the rest of us continued in the same severe serious frame of mind a fact which put a certain check upon the general hilarity now look here gentlemen said dubkoff at last after dinner we ought to take the diplomat in hand how would it be for him to go with us to see auntie there we could put him through his paces ah but nekhludoff will not go there objected woloda oh unbearable insupportable man of quiet habits that you are cried dubkoff turning to dimitri yet come with us and you shall see what an excellent lady my dear auntie is i will neither go myself nor let him go replied dimitri let whom go the diplomat why you yourself saw how he brightened up at the very mention of auntie it is not so much that i will not let him go continued dimitri rising and beginning to pace the room without looking at me as that i neither wish him nor advise him to go he is not a child now and if he must go he can go alone without you surely you are ashamed of this dubkoff ashamed of always wanting others to do all the wrong things that you yourself do but what is there so very wrong in my inviting you all to come and take a cup of tea with my aunt said dubkoff with a wink at woloda if you don't like us going it is your affair yet we are going all the same are you coming woloda yes yes assented woloda we can go there and then return to my rooms and continue our piquet do you want to go with them or not said dimitri approaching me no i replied at the same time making room for him to sit down beside me on the divan i did not wish to go in any case and since you advise me not to nothing on earth will make me go now yet i added a moment later i cannot honestly say that i have no desire to go all i say is that i am glad i am not going that is right he said live your own life and do not dance to any one's piping that is the better way this little tiff not only failed to mar our hilarity but even increased it dimitri suddenly reverted to the kindly mood which i loved best so great as i afterwards remarked on more than one occasion was the influence which the consciousness of having done a good deed exercised upon him at the present moment the source of his satisfaction was the fact that he had stopped my expedition to auntie's he grew extraordinarily gay called for another bottle of champagne which was against his rules invited some one who was a perfect stranger into our room plied him with wine sang god am a secretary requested every one to join him in the chorus and proposed that we should and drink at the sokolniki muse let us enjoy ourselves to-night he said with a laugh it is in honour of his matriculation that you now see me getting drunk for the first time in my life yet somehow this merriment sat ill upon him he was like some good-natured father or tutor who is pleased with his young charges and lets himself go for their amusement yet at the same time tries to show them that one can enjoy oneself decently and in an honourable manner however 
His unexpected gaiety had an infectious influence upon myself and my companions, and the more so because each of us had now drunk about half a bottle of champagne. It was in this pleasing frame of mind that I went out into the main salon to smoke a cigarette, which Dubkoff had given me. In rising I noticed that my head seemed to swim a little, and that my legs and arms retained their natural positions only when I bent my thoughts determinedly upon them. At other moments my legs would deviate from the straight line, and my arms describe strange gestures. I concentrated my whole attention upon the members in question, forced my hands first to raise themselves and button my tunic, and then to smooth my hair, though they ruffled my locks in doing so, and lastly commanded my legs to march me to the door, a function which they duly performed, though at one time with too much reluctance, and another with too much abandon the left leg in particular coming to a halt every moment on tiptoe. Some one called out to me, "'Where are you going to? They will bring you a cigar-light directly.' But I guessed the voice to be Woloda's, and feeling satisfied, somehow, that I had succeeded in divining the fact, merely smiled airily in reply, and continued on my way. CHAPTER Sixteen, THE QUARREL in the main salon I perceived sitting at a small table a short squat gentleman of the professional type. He had a red moustache, and was engaged in eating something or another, while by his side sat a tall, clean-shaven individual with whom he was carrying on a conversation in French. Somehow the aspect of these two persons displeased me. Yet I decided for all that to light my cigarette at the candelabrum which was standing before them. Looking from side to side to avoid meeting their gaze, I approached the table and applied my cigarette to the flame. When it was fairly alight, I involuntarily threw a glance at the gentleman who was eating, and found his grey eyes fixed upon me with an expression of intense displeasure. Just as I was turning away his red moustache moved a little, and he said in French, "'I do not like people to smoke when I am dining, my good sir.' I murmured something inaudible. "'No, I do not like it at all,' he went on sternly, and with a glance at his clean-shaven companion, as though inviting him to admire the way in which he was about to deal with me. "'I do not like it, my good sir. Nor do I like people who have the impudence to puff their smoke up one's very nose.' By this time I had gathered that it was myself he was scolding, and at first felt as though I had been altogether in the wrong. "'I did not mean to inconvenience you,' I said. Well, if you did not suppose you were being impertinent, at least I did. You are a cad, young sir," he shouted in reply. "'But what right have you to shout at me like that?' I exclaimed, feeling that it was now he that was insulting me, and growing angry accordingly. "'This much right,' he replied, "'that I never allow myself to be overlooked by any one, and that I always teach young fellows like yourself their manners. What is your name, young sir? And where do you live?' At this I felt so hurt that my teeth chattered, and I felt as though I were choking, yet all the while I was conscious of being in the wrong, and so, instead of offering any further rudeness to the offended one, humbly told him my name and address. "'And my name, young sir,' he returned, is Kolpikoff, and I will trouble you to be more polite to me in future. However, you will hear from me again. Vous aurez de mes nouvelles the conversation had been carried on wholly in French, was his concluding remark. To this I replied, I shall be delighted, with an infusion of as much hauteur as I could muster into my tone. Then turning on my heel, I returned with my cigarette, which had meanwhile gone out, to our own room. 
I said nothing, either to my brother or my friends, about what had happened, and the more so because they were at that moment engaged in a dispute of their own, but sat down in a corner to think over the strange affair. The words, You are a cad, young sir, vexed me more and more the longer that they sounded in my ears. My tipsiness was gone now, and in considering my conduct during the dispute, the uncomfortable thought came over me that I had behaved like a coward. Yet what right had he to attack me? I reflected. Why did he not simply intimate to me that I was annoying him? After all, it may have been that he was in the wrong. Why, too, when he called me a young cad, did I not say to him, A cad, my good sir, is one who takes offence? Or why did I not simply tell him to hold his tongue? That would have been the better course. Or why did I not challenge him to a duel? No, I did none of those things, but swallowed his insults like a wretched coward. Still the words, You are a cad, young sir, kept sounding in my ears with maddening iteration. I cannot leave things as they are, I at length decided, as I rose to my feet with the fixed intention of returning to the gentleman, and saying something outrageous to him, perhaps also of breaking the candelabrum over his head if occasion offered. Yet, though I considered the advisability of this last measure with some pleasure, it was not without a good deal of trepidation that I re-entered the main salon. As luck would have it, M. Kolpikoff was no longer there, but only a waiter engaged in clearing the table. For a moment I felt like telling the waiter the whole story and explaining to him my innocence in the matter, but for some reason or another I thought better of it, and once more returned, in the same hazy condition of mind, to our own room. "'What has become of our diplomat?' Dubkoff was just saying. "'Upon him now hang the fortunes of Europe.' "'Oh, leave me alone,' I said, turning moodily away. Then, as I paced the room, something made me begin to think that Dubkoff was not altogether a good fellow. There is nothing very much to admire in his eternal jokes and his nickname of diplomat, I reflected. All he thinks about is to win money from Woloda and to go to see his auntie. There is nothing very nice in all that. Besides, everything he says has a touch of blackguardism in it, and he is forever trying to make people laugh. In my opinion he is simply stupid when he is not absolutely a brute. I spent about five minutes in these reflections, and felt my enmity towards Dubkoff continually increasing. For his part, he took no notice of me, and that angered me the more. I actually felt vexed with Woloda and Dmitri because they went on talking to him. "'I tell you what, gentlemen, the diplomat ought to be christened,' said Dubkoff, suddenly, with a glance and a smile which seemed to me derisive and even treacherous. Yet, oh, Lord, what a poor specimen he is! "'You yourself ought to be christened.' "'And you yourself are a sorry specimen,' I retorted with an evil smile, and actually forgetting to address him as thou. In Russian, as in French, the second person singular is the form of speech used between intimate friends. This reply evidently surprised Dubkoff, but he turned away good-humouredly, and went on talking to Woloda and Dmitri. I tried to edge myself into the conversation, but since I felt that I could not keep it up, I soon returned to my corner and remained there until we left. When the bill had been paid, and wraps were being put on, Dubkoff turned to Dmitri and said, "'Whither are Orestes and Pedalion going now? Home, I suppose, to talk about love. Well, let us go and see my dear auntie. That will be far more entertaining than your sour company.' "'How dare you speak like that and laugh at us?' I burst out, as I approached him with clenched fists. "'How dare you laugh at feelings which you do not understand? I will not have you do it. Hold your tongue.' At this point I had to hold my own, for I did not know what to say next, and was, moreover, out of breath with excitement. 
At first Dubkoff was taken aback, but presently he tried to laugh it off, and to take it as a joke. Finally, I was surprised to see him look crestfallen, and lower his eyes. "'I never laugh at you or your feelings. It is merely my way of speaking,' he said evasively. "'Indeed!' I cried. Yet the next moment I felt ashamed of myself and sorry for him, since his flushed, downcast face had in it no other expression than one of genuine pain. "'What is the matter with you?' said Woloda and Dmitri simultaneously. "'No one was trying to insult you.' "'Yes, he did try to insult me,' I replied. "'What an extraordinary fellow your brother is,' said Dubkoff to Woloda. At that moment he was passing out of the door, and could not have heard what I said. Possibly I should have flung myself after him and offered him further insult had it not been that just at that moment the waiter who had witnessed my encounter with Kolpikoff handed me my greatcoat, and I at once quietened down, merely making such a pretense of having had a difference with Dmitri as was necessary to make my sudden appeasement appear nothing extraordinary. Next day, when I met Dubkoff at Woloda's, the quarrel was not raked up. Yet he and I still addressed each other as you, and found it harder than ever to look one another in the face. The remembrance of my scene with Kolpikoff, who, by the way, never sent me to say Nouvelle, either the following day or any day afterwards, remained for years a keen and unpleasant memory. Even so much as five years after it happened I would begin fidgeting, and muttering to myself whenever I remembered the unavenged insult and was fain to comfort myself with the satisfaction of recollecting the sort of young fellow I had shown myself to be in my subsequent affair with Dubkoff. In fact, it was only later, still, that I began to regard the matter in another light, and both to recall with comic appreciation my passage of arms with Kolpikoff, and to regret the undeserved affront which I had offered my good friend Dubkoff. When, at a later hour on the evening of the dinner, I told Dmitri of my affair with Kolpikoff, whose exterior I described in detail, he was astounded. "'That is the very man!' he cried. "'Don't you know that this precious Kolpikoff is a known scamp and sharper, as well as, above all things, a coward, and that he was expelled from his regiment by his brother officers, because having had his face slapped he would not fight? But how came you to let him get away?' he added, with a kindly smile and glance. "'Surely he could not have said more to you than he did when he called you a cad?' "'No,' I admitted with a blush. "'Well, it was not right, but there was no great harm done,' said Dmitri consolingly. Long afterwards, when thinking the matter over at leisure, I suddenly came to the conclusion that it was quite possible that Kolpikoff took the opportunity of vicariously wiping off upon me the slap in the face which he had once received, just as I myself took the opportunity of vicariously wiping off upon the innocent Dubkoff the epithet cad which Kolpikoff had just applied to me. End of section 4. Recording by Bill Borst.